0: Hey there, welcome to Groundbreakers, a bi-weekly podcast that explores transformations in where, how, and why we work, and the intersection of DEIB within our workplaces and spaces. I'm your host, Shelley Wright, Chief Diversity Officer at Unispace. With each episode of Groundbreakers, I'll be talking to fascinating people, all of them groundbreakers in their industries. We won't have all of the answers, but we'll have some provocative and pretty entertaining conversations. We have an exciting show for y'all today. We'll be talking to Rob Newson, VP of Strategy and Vision for the Philadelphia 76ers. Welcome to Groundbreakers, Rob.
1: Thanks, Shelley. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, so let me give our listeners a little background on you. Rob is the Vice President of Strategy and Vision for the Philadelphia 76ers, where he is responsible for cultivating championship DNA, integrating innovation efforts, and supporting leadership development and decision-making. Previously, he served as the director of White House Military Office, responsible for military support to the president, running point on military logistics for Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, the Presidential Food Service, and White House Medical Office. Rob served nearly 30 years as a United States Navy SEAL, where he was a startup specialist leading or part of six separate new military organizations, including two national strategic planning elements, and a first-of-its-kind organization to collect and integrate battlefield intelligence to identify and disable terrorist networks. Rob has led numerous diverse teams and task forces. We'll get into that more today. Really, this is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to dig into. Rob, wow, that's a lot.
1: Yeah, it kept me busy.
0: That's as long as I've known you, which is a long time. You've stayed busy. Um, Look, I'm I'm going to ask you some questions, Rob, that I know the answers to, but our listeners don't. So you know, let's get that out of the way so we can get down to business. Where did you grow up? Spoiler alert: I know where you grew up. Where'd you grow up, Rob? I grew up in Wellsville, Kansas, home of Shelley Wright. (laughs) Amazing. yeah, so there's a, there's a lot to discuss about the ville. Um, you know, it, you were I, I recall you. You know, we were a few years apart in age. I think you were one year ahead of my brother. Um, yeah. That that said, our school was kindergarten through twelfth grade in one building. So you know, we ran in we ran in the same circles, and our lockers were together. And uh, it's uh, there. There's a lot to say about the way we grew up. But how would you say that that Wellsville, you know, defined you?
1: like you said wellsville is, was a small town and everyone knew everyone so you know you grew up with a sense of community and and pride in the community and rival with with other towns and and so that was you know that was i think my first introduction to to having a sense of community and and wanting it for the rest of my life, whether that was at Wellsville or KU or in the SEAL teams and then after.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? One of the things that I I want to impart to our listeners is that the guy they're hearing today has always been the guy, you know, that I've known. And you were really unique, Rob. I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass you, but you were the star quarterback. You were the star basketball player. And we, by the way, let's note, we were really good at sports in Wellsville. Uh, we were, um, sports was a big deal and and we were state contenders most every year. And Rob was a big part of that. And he's also a fox, stone cold fox, good looking dude. Um, and he was also the nicest guy in the school. Um, he, you know, it wasn't difficult to see early on that he built community and pulled people in. And so, you know, one one of the things we'll get to later today is talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And that has been a main tenant of your life um since since the get-go, Rob. And I, I kinda wanna know where where'd that come from? We lived in a pretty non-diverse area. Where'd you get that?
1: We did. It it absolutely came from from my parents, who were, as you know, were were great people. My dad was a teacher at Wellsville. So everybody that I know knows my dad too, just from, from being a student of his, but, but mom and dad were absolutely phenomenal. He was in the Navy as well. And, and, uh, you know, in the 1970s, we were stationed in Hawaii and they had, I had two brothers. So they had three sons of their own and became foster parents of, um, a little black baby which you know was he became part of our family for a year and a half until he was he was adopted so you know that that type of inclusion and and example of my parents who who you know there there was nothing too small or too big they wouldn't do for another person
0: yeah wayne and shirley good folks um i know you have your phd in leadership studies but uh dr newson I'd like to know what was your first job?
1: <laughs> well, I had—I guess I had two first jobs. Of course, I worked at Cal's Mobile pumping yeah, gas you, and you, uh, you did. causing trouble for Cal because I wasn't, wasn't a great uh, employee, I don't think. And I also wrote for um, the local paper. I did a sports beat for the local paper at the same time.
0: Yeah, you, um, was that the Wellsville Globe? Pretty yes, sure it was the Wellsville club um but you were also on the on the yearbook, uh not the yearbook staff, but the um the school newspaper staff, yeah, right? the
1: Eagle cry school newspaper. I wrote an editorial yeah, you did
0: you fair and balanced, of course, you always were <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, Cal's filling station right there on the corner, you know what's, what's so great about that guy is like he fixed our our popped bike tires for free. Like he never charged a kid to fix fix a tire. I tell recall- you, Cal and
1: Dorothy were amazing people. I saw her. I was back in Wellsville for the for the Wall of Fame presentation, and Dorothy came in, and and it was so great to see her.
0: Yeah, really good folks. Um, you know, l- let's move on a little bit to you know you've had a really um, it's it's almost difficult to characterize your career. It's been it's been so big and you, um, you know, I've known you all these years and you're the most humble person I know. Um, I, even though I know you well, when I dug into your, your CV and, uh, Caroline, our producer and I were digging on you, I was like, there were things, there were many things about you. I never knew. Um, one of them is that you served as the federal executive fellow at the council on foreign relations in New York city. When was that? and, And what was your work stream there?
1: That was 2014-15. It starts in September and goes through June or July. And so it was what a phenomenal experience in New York City for a year. And we had two daughters that that went to NYU and and one stayed there. So we got to be with our middle daughter in in New York, um, hosting parties once a month for her and, and her her squad of friends was, was great to connect, you know, to, so great. to the, to the squad. Um, but the, the work, the work at CFR was obviously we, you know, the Navy asked me to do a research project. And uh, so I focused on that, but we basically were assets and, and, and tools for, the permanent fellows there so what a what a great experience working with and and around some super smart people at the council on foreign relations and focused on everything from geopolitical events and and policy to health at that time zika was a huge deal and mm-hmm. they've got a phenomenal health expert at cfr that uh, Lori garrett that we learned so much from and so it was it was just an eye opening experience intellectually but they also took us around the city and and we were able to experience new york like no one else so you know the kids said that that we new york we knew new york better than they did and they'd lived there for seven or eight years um it was just a phenomenal experience and and really transformative for me right i spent 20 plus years being a navy seal not talking about what I did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Kimberly yeah. said, "Look, you you understand. You're going to have to talk about yourself now." <laughs> and so it really pushed the boundaries of uh, being able to give give your opinions as if you know, as if they they were worth anything, and and th- they were much appreciated at CFR from from where we came from. But that's not the way we think as military guys, and 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 certainly we're not used to highlighting ourselves or, or talking about our experiences in the military.
0: Yeah. Um, the, yeah, your ethos is, you know, my brother is, was a 28 year Marine and, and, um, and, you know, my brother, Chris, and, um, you know, guys and gals who, who do the kinds of work uh, that you did, um, they don't talk a lot about it. And, you know, I think it's, I, I kind of want to get inside your head a little bit and ask you, you know, I know you went off to KU after graduating from as a Wellsville Eagle. And uh, what did what did you study there? And at what point did you decide the military would be your focus? How did those how did college and then the military kind of intersect?
1: Well, so I applied for a national ROTC scholarship and was lucky enough to be selected. You know, I, my my parent, my dad was a school teacher, my mom was a nursing home administrator. We weren't swimming in, in money and I, I wanted to, to ease the burden on, on them. And so was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go to KU um, at Naval ROTC. And so I knew, right, the deal was you, they give you four years and and you owe them four years and in the military. And my dad was in the Navy. So that seemed like a, a natural fit. And, of course, I, I walked on the KU football team and played. Played, uh, football for five seasons. I redshirted one season and, and, uh, KU was, was kind enough to give me a, a scholarship my last semester because oh, my, great. my ROTC scholarship ran out after four years. But, uh, so yeah, I always knew I was going to go in the military. It was just a question of. Of what I was going to do, and and uh, we can talk about that if you want, but it it was fairly concerning until I found the SEAL teams and and knew that that was my tribe.
0: Well, I do want to talk about that. Um, you know, how did what was your calculus in in deciding to go into the SEAL team work? Like, who I, I'm always curious about aptitude and how that is analyzed, and how you know young men and women who are in, joining the military. How do they know which lane to get in?
1: A lot of it is is self-selection, right? And so ROTC and the Naval Academy, what they do between your sophomore and junior year is a career training orientation cruise. And and so you will go to a hub of the Navy and you will be exposed to everything. The Navy does. So I spent a week at Camp Pendleton with the Marines, and it was very clear that I wasn't a Marine. (laughs) We spent some time uh, with with the jets at Miramar and and submarines and ships. And and so after after nearly completing that cruise, I was very concerned because I didn't find anything that, you know, I was passionate about that that called to me. And I thought this is going to be a long four years in the Navy. And the last thing we did was went to Coronado, California, the home of basic underwater demolition seal training. And we watched this like 1970 movie called, you want to be a, so you want to be a frog man that was <laughs> super cheesy. And then we ran the O course, the obstacle course. And I walked out of there thinking, man, this is it. And, uh, was really excited about it. I went back to KU and, and, my exO executive officer at ROTC asked me, "Okay, what do you think you want to do?" and I said, "I want to be a seal and she laughed and said, "Yeah, a lot of people want to be a seal, not many are and right.
0: you know,
1: I was just fortunate to you know I think my my football background and my academics kind of helped me get selected and and uh, was fortunate enough to to make it through training and and then it was just one adventure after another.
0: What do you think was the the magic, the sweet, the kind of the magic sauce of your being able to, you know, she said not, not many people can be a seal. Um, why do you think you were able to do it and do it so well? And you gave them more than four years, you gave them 30.
1: Uh, Yeah, that was surprised at the end of it. Um, (laughs) you know, you just take it kind of tour by tour and then, and then, you know, you're going to do 20 and, and then the last 10 just absolutely flew by. Of course we were right. We were in, in, a war for, yeah. for a lot of that. So that, that kind of speeds up your calendar too. but really getting through buds is, is all about What's the grit and focus. Buds is, is SEAL training, basic underwater okay. demolition SEAL training. And, and so it is arguably one of the toughest accession and selection courses in the world. It's, um, the first phase is is basically where they weed most people out. Um, you start with a class of about 250. By week four, you're in what they call Hell Week. It starts Sunday night with a, a, a breakout of chaos and madness, guns firing and smoke, and goes nonstop to sometime some unknown time on Friday, and um, you get. I, I'm told you get about two to two and a half hours of sleep during that entire week. Um, I, I believe I got less. Wow. <laughs> they say it wow. pays to be a winner, and my boat crew was definitely not a winner. So we were always trailing and uh, offering other winning boat crews a chance to catch a nap while we were we were <laughs> catching up to them. But so, you know, during Hell Week and, and all the way through Bud's, if you want to quit, you... You simply have to go to a brass bell and ring it three times and um you know the bell is ringing constantly from from the time that it breaks out and uh we started around 250 i think we we finished hell week around um 47 or so when we eventually graduated 43. Wow! but wow. it's it's really uh, um about grit and focus and being able to to have a capacity to suffer, and and suffer for a reason, right? I mean, you're you're mm-hmm. hanging on because you want. For me, I wanted to challenge myself. I, I wanted to be part of an elite team, and and I wanted to to contribute in a significant way. And so that that's what motivated me. But everybody comes in with their own their own motivation, and and uh, as long as you mm-hmm. stay focused on that, you're you have a good chance to get through. Of course, there's some luck involved with not being injured. We're not drawing too much undue attention to yourself that uh, increases your load.
0: Can you talk to me about the psychology of that that bell? Um, Is it? I I think I've heard you talk about this a little bit in interviews and about. um, I think quitting when you have to go ring a bell. There's. It's more than just saying I quit, right? You have to take the steps to the bell. And um, what is that? What's the psychology of that? And did you ever take a step toward the bell?
1: It's, you know, I think it's, it's funny when you go through SEAL training, it seems uh, very capricious and, and uh, random, right? There's just a lot of activities. And, but I, I'm convinced now that all of it is very well designed and, and part of the psychology of, of the bell and, and the way they design um, what they, they um, call DORs, drop-on request is it has to be a very intentional action right it mm-hmm. just can't be this spur a moment I'm mad I'm tired I'm weak I, I I want I quit you know just the words I quit aren't those are easy to say taking those steps towards the bell standing in front of your class because usually uh, unless something serious is going on you will stop and and they'll be like all right Somebody's walking towards the bell and you have to watch this guy walk to the bell and ring it three times. And so it's, it's intentional in that they want a person to think about what they're doing and Mm -hmm. consider that. And, and oftentimes they will pull somebody aside and say, are are you sure that you can't, there's no coming back. And uh, so I, I love the way they design it to be so intentional and, um, it's also symbolic, right? The yeah. thing about SEALs is there's no quit in them. And, and, yeah. you know, I've, I've talked when we're going to, I know we're going to talk about this, but when we were looking at, at the women in, in service review yeah. and, um, and allowing women to be in combat roles and including, um, boat drivers and, and SEALs, um, we, we talked about the the no quit aspect of it and we interviewed people about hell week and training and right. Because when you're, when we were doing the review, it was about being gender neutral, meaning that yeah. we didn't do that. We, you know, we didn't pick 50 pull-ups just because a man could do 50 pull-ups. It, everything was tied to something and hell week was tied to combat. It hell week goes back to world war two and, and the training of, of um the the frogman that you know went went on beaches in in normandy in the pacific and and so there's a long history there but it was well designed and we talked to seals who had been in years and years of combat and you know tell us about hell week and they said one it was a touching stone right when you're going mm-hmm. through your worst moment you can look back and say okay i went through that and two In retrospect, compared, compared to the things that they have done in combat, Hell Week was, you know, a small thing. And, and so it's, it's amazing to me how well they, they designed it. But the key is the bell is a symbol of quitting. And, and you need, if you're going to, if you're going to rally around, if you're going to create community around no quit, you need to know what quit looks like. And so Mm -hmm. they've, they've done a, a phenomenal job of designing and maintaining a culture through symbols. And the bell is a symbol.
0: Yeah, I love it. I think we can all learn a a lesson, you know, if we could take that kind of that thinking and philosophy out into the world and into our workspaces, um, you know, and and I know that's exactly what you do in your work with the 76ers uh, right now. I want to talk to you about that composition of that original buds team that was 250 got culled down to 47 and then graduated 43 gender wise what did that look like
1: oh that was all completely male and 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 that that was the case right from the beginning and um up up to i think it was 2016 when we started the uh, when DOD started the study and and eventually Opened up all combat roles to women, and and it was you know I I was I counted myself very fortunate and um, kind of kind of in the barrel, if you will, to be the guy leading this because because there was some resistance there was there were there were definite opinions that um, were rooted in limited knowledge and experience with diversity. It, yeah. Gender diversity. And so, you know, if all you know is a male only culture, then clearly any kind of mixed culture would not be good, right? We know we're good. Right. So right. let's not mess with success. And so it was, it was a fascinating and educational experience to, to kind of walk through that. But, um, it, uh, it's, it's slowly changing. You know, I think I, I saw that. That the 100th female ranger just graduated Ranger School, which is to me is go a on. phenomenal number. Um, ranger School is is also one of the toughest um, accession and selection programs in in the world. Um, you know, we get people wet and cold, but we feed them. Rangers don't don't feed you, and <laughs> and so it's a different kind of of, uh, of pain cruel. to go through Ranger School, but. Um, no woman has yet to graduate SEAL training. There have been some that have started. We recently had the first female graduate our combatant craft crewman course, which is our phenomenal boat drivers, um, best in the world. And so we've got some groundbreaking there, but I I think part of it, I went, when I was at the White House with the White House military office, I, I went to, uh, the Naval Academy to speak. And I asked uh, one of the professors if I could talk to female cadets who might be interested in in being SEALs. And, you know, it's, I'm convinced it's, it's a matter of knowing what's available and being able to prepare for it. And and this, you know, you don't, you don't wake up in one day and and be ready for, for SEAL training. So I think it's, it's going to take a few years of, of some women that are are focused and and want to be seals the the other interesting thing i think is that you know when we consider the elite performer that becomes a seal and then you consider women that are capable of doing that and these women have options right they're only right. they're, they're world class olympic athletes they are um american ninja warriors you know they they have so many options that the average guy who goes to buds does it? So um, we're, that's a
0: really good point. We're that's, in,
1: that's, you know, we're yeah. selecting not from an elite group like men. We're we're selecting from a super elite group, right? And I've got so much to talk about with with respect to that that study. I, I don't want to just focus on that, so I'll let you kind of guide me. But cool. really fascinating stuff that that we work through in in the Women in Service Review.
0: Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, Rob, that these women, you know, if, uh, you know, if they're reaching the kind of physical and, um, uh, you know, uh, the heights that you have to be to go through buds, that they're, they're superior women who probably can do anything in the world they want to do. Um, hadn't thought of that. Um, will you tell me No, obviously, I know you've led that. Um, the uh, women in combatant roles study. And, and I'm glad to get that out there that you were, you know, I, I know you faced resistance, but you pushed and, and you created change in a space where change, you know, is slow to happen. You were also involved with uh, SEAL communities, female support teams. Is that part of that initiative? Or is that a different thing?
1: No, yeah, it was completely separate. So um, b- before that initiative, or as that initiative was kicking off, right, we're we're deep into the war on terrorism, and Admiral Eric Olson, a SEAL, was in charge of Special Operations Command. All of all of special operations, so Green Berets, Ranger, SEALs, aviation, the whole the whole kit and caboodle. And and he pushed very hard for um, coalition support teams, which is the Army's version of the Navy SEALs female support teams. And if you read, um, Ashley's War, you know, a great book uh, that is uh, is just a a great description of of women in service and their mentality around that. But Admiral Olson pushed it. We had had recently started a cultural engagement unit that was primarily that was built around um, creating language and regional experts. And so what we did is we were we were able to recruit through a special program um, immigrants or second generation people from various countries that that right spoke the language and knew the culture, knew it intimately. Yeah. And we would bring them into the Navy, train them to be a support mechanism for Navy SEALs, and then deploy them. Um, they did some phenomenal stuff in, and, you know, and these are, um, Koreans, Pakistanis, various African nations that really brought some cultural awareness and some insight that we didn't have and, and did a fantastic job. And, and so we had that brand new unit and that's where we put, uh, put this effort of this thought of creating female support teams. And so we recruited primarily from our Navy reserve community and they went through, um, you know, it wasn't seal training, but they went through a training program created by seals to prepare them to go on combat missions with, with seals and green berets. So we would send them to Iraq, Afghanistan, and they kind of get formed out from, from there. Yeah. And, phenomenal women who did incredible service right yeah
0: and yeah, yeah.
1: and part of this is is the way the female and male brain works and what they're focused on and and an ability to 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 have kind of a broader perspective one of my one of my favorite stories of of coalition sport team or female sport teams is um right that they're they're interacting with the 50% of the population in Afghanistan that men are not allowed to interact with, as well as interacting right. with, with, uh, children in a, in a different way than, than men would. And so on one particular mission, um, the women who are, are focused on engagement with other women and kids were the first to notice that <laughs> there were no women and kids on the street. And, oh. and she said, hey, something is not right And obviously she she tee off um, clued into uh, an ambush that was in in the making that was able to be oh. avoided. but it, it's all about you know adding a different focus and perspective and capacity to to a capability and to combat.
0: Yeah that's yeah um l- let's take that and l- let's move on into want to know more about your, work with the Philadelphia 76ers and and kind of taking that more diverse voices at the table kind of gives you a better lay of the land. How did that kind of play out in your role with the 76ers and and what, you know, what was the lay of the land when you got there? And I know you're leaving at the end of May, so by the time this episode airs, you will have already left the organization. Um, what would you say is, you know, your greatest um, achievement that you, that you've witnessed and, and been part of since you've been there?
1: Yeah. It was a fascinating three years or I, you know, I, as you said, I I played a lot of sports. I really wasn't, I'm not a a sports watcher. I didn't follow pro sports. And when I was, was going through interviews, one of, one of my um, peers now was on the interview panel and he leaned in, he was super excited. He said, why are you so excited to be in the NBA? And I looked at it and I said, dude, I'm not. I, I don't know anything about the NBA, but I what I'm passionate about is teams, leadership, and culture. You guys are talking about that, and I think I can help with that. And and that really resonated with with them. And so I, you know, I had a unique opportunity. The Honor Foundation is a great transition institute that that started out supporting SEALs and now supports all of all of special operations. They have uh, four or five campuses around the United States that that teach a, a three month transition course and prepare, you know, these great warriors to take on their nest, next mission in the corporate, corporate or, or non-profit world. And so I reached out to them when I finished the White House. They said, look, I'm looking for something different. And they connected me with the executive vice president of basketball operations, Alex Rucker, at the time, who was a former Navy pilot who had friends who went through the Honor Foundation. And he was keen for diversity if you will he he knew yeah. they wanted a different perspective and so i talked to him i talked to elton brand the the fantastic uh, human being and general manager of of the 76ers and and so they they brought me on and you know part of of what i do is is help the general manager think about decisions and and look around corners and, and think deeper, right? All leaders are, can be consumed with the day to day. And so having a guy that is, is thinking about future crisis or potential of, of issues and, and uh, kind of framing decisions is very helpful. And so that's what, one of the things I, I brought to Elton, but I really didn't think about the veteran aspect of diversity when Mm-hmm. when I went to the 76ers, but I was giving a presentation um and th- this was after um, the January six right capital riots yeah. and and I was talking about how this is the first the first time that the capital has been attacked since since the war of 1812 and um I asked is are you know are there any veterans in in the audience and and there were none. And I was kind of oh. surprised about that. You know, oh, wow. it's, it's, and the sports industry is incredibly hard to break into. Um, yeah. And, and so that it's not surprising from that, that perspective, but that's, that's when I started to realize that, you know, diversity of thought and experience is is important and, and probably needs to be recruited more aggressively. But the, the things I most enjoyed was, was working with amazing David Gould, who is the 76ers, uh, um, chief of diversity and impact. And I love that they, when, you know, when George Floyd happened and, and there was a lot of focus on in, in corporations to create diversity offices that they focused not on words and statements, they focused on impact. And, and so working with with David and his crew in diversity impact has been a great a great joy for me and then also with with our chief human resource officer on some leadership development training stuff has has really been the most enjoyable work i've done
0: yeah it was so good to watch the nba um you know obviously you know these professional sports leagues they all handled it with diff- you know a range of efficacy and, you know, uh, maybe authenticity or intention, but the NBA, um, they did a lot of things right. It was really, ad- it was really great to watch. You've talked a lot, Rob, about looking ahead and around corners. And I wanted to ask you about, is Kimberly leaving for work? Bye Kimberly. This is real, this is real life people. We do podcasts from our house, um, the new ways of working. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, you know, in terms of you know, we're, it seems like America and a lot of places around the globe are in a continual state of crisis, right? So we're going from one, oh my God, moment to the next. And, and I want to ask you about what the difference is and what the kind of what the real time scenario is with an organization like the 76ers when you're trying to like clean up or message something that has happened versus something that is happening. What does that look like?
1: Our our chief human resource officer partnered with with our chief impact diversity and impact are are the two people that lead that communication and and I was just talking to Elizabeth Berman our our, our crow yesterday about what a fantastic job they do scoping that message and and what I love about what they do is it's it's focused on the person right it's not. It's not an about the issue as much as it's about how people are going to handle the issue and, and providing resources that, you know, people in, in crisis, whether it's, um, you know, gun violence or diversity and, and racial equity issues, people are, are suffering during those points. And so providing resources and focusing on how we care for each other is a big part of that message i think as well as um getting off the porch and and taking a stand and and we've seen you know a lot of organizations steve Kerr's recent statements wow. on on gun violence you know it's 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 caring and being passionate and and putting yourself out there and and, and this this day and age that can be very very dangerous personally and professionally to, to come down on a side and, and traditionally businesses haven't done that, but I think they're, they're realizing that they, they have a role and a, a voice.
0: When you're making those decisions about, you know, you you we all have our careers that we're looking out for, and then we have our personal self. And hopefully in the Venn diagram of life, there's a big shared space there. And we're seeing more and more that, People want that; they need it, especially post George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, COVID, in the ways that it's disproportionately affected. You know, Black and Brown, and you know anyone who's not in you know kind of a majority bucket. I think the I think you you and know, I've talked about this before, uh, personally and privately, that the uh, people are making decisions about where they want to work differently, and they want to be able to bring their whole self to work. For you personally, Rob, when when things like the shooting that happened in Texas, in the in the elementary school, and the you know the shooting in Buffalo and Sandy Hook, and all of, all of the things we've seen, um, as a, as a dad, d- it, does that help tip you over into um, having more comfort and courage to speak out and maybe have your career on the line?
1: You know where where you sit and where you lay, live, where you stand. Um, makes mm. a difference and, and can be a motivating factor to to be a little bit more courageous or, or committed to a cause, whatever that cause may be. But um, for for me, it's and, and I you know I'm very aware. I want I want to strike a balance, and I don't want to to um, cause a divide, if you will. Uh, you know i want I want to bridge, not not make a statement that feels good, but but uh, can can cause more trouble than than value. so um no I, I try to weigh that, but it's it's really I, I think about what kind of person I want to be and and i'm I'm very hard on myself and um, in, in evaluating if I'm living up to the person, the person I want to be, you know, the person my kids think I am. And, and so, and I don't always live up to that, but for me, that's, that's the greatest trigger for action is, am I, you know, am I being the person I, I should be? And the second is, and is this value added? Is it, you yeah. know, is making a statement just for me or is it, have I thought about it and how it, how I'm going to va- add value?
0: Right, right, and will it render your is if it's just a if that you're saying something that you want to say for gratification or it impetuously does it get your voice kind of removed from the room, and I you know that's that's one of the things you know I try to think about a lot and um, that's good guidance there. Tell me quickly if you will about you've got three kids, you've got Aubrey, Chelsea, and Craig. Um, Will you tell me a little bit about your kids?
1: Yeah, we'll we'll start from youngest and go the oldest. So, uh Craig is um a county park ranger in San Diego. He is um of everyone I know, he probably loves his job more than anybody else. It's oh, wow. he um absolutely loves nature and engagement with the public. And so he's he's very happy with with where he's at. He graduated from from San Diego state and, uh, became a, a, a county park ranger and, and, uh, he's just in the process of, of moving park. So he's, he's very happy and, and, uh, a very funny, happy-go-lucky white rapper, uh, he's, oh, yeah. huh? he's, he's a, he's a great guy. And then, uh, Chelsea is our, our middle daughter. She's been in New York for, I think, uh, 14 years, lives in Brooklyn, uh, Is the director of um, internal communications and community for Oatly, the uh, milk substitute. So, she just a couple years ago got her master's in communication and and uh, is is doing doing very well and and has a great community of uh, of friends and and uh, you know second family in in New York. Awesome. And then. Aubrey is, is our oldest. She's in Topeka, Kansas. Um, my parents mm-hmm. recently moved away from Topeka to Lenexa, but, but uh, you know, Aubrey and, and the kids would spend summers back with my mom and dad. So Kansas, a little bit of, of home and, and she went back home. Um, she's at the Washburn university working on, on her degree. And, and uh, you know, I don't know if we've ever, ever talked about this, but, but uh, when Aubrey was 16, she reached out to to Kimberly, who was in San Diego. We we've, we've done a lot of geographical bachelor work. She's at ER Doc in San Diego, and 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 has stayed planted while I've kind of moved around a little bit. And Aubrey called Kimberly and said, "Hey, I I need to tell Dad something,
0: hmm.
1: and would you come and help?" And so Kimberly came out and I thought, what a, you know, what a, <laughs> what a great surprise visit. Right. But, uh, you know, Aubrey, Aubrey and Kimberly, um, you know, took me on a walk and, and Aubrey told me that, that she was um, a lesbian and right. um, it was, you. I came, you know where I come from, right? And I uh-huh. know, I know your experience. Uh-huh. And uh, so I came from the, the same same culture and the same um kind of religious background and yeah. my first thought and and my abiding thought has always been I want her to be happy right you want yeah. you want her to have a a, a full and fulfilling life and yeah. and so I I think that went fairly well and uh um I've been impressed we've got some some probably um common friends in in Wellsville, who have children of, that are in the LGBTQ community. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think we can be hard on on uh, the Bible Belt, but I've been so impressed with, with um, friends who have kind of gotten over the hump and embraced their children for who they are.
0: Yeah. Well, good job, Dad. I mean, I know that conversation of, uh, pulling your dad aside and having that conversation about dad, there's something I got to share with you. And, you know, I, I received a, a similar response from my dad. He, you know, he turned on a dime. Now, this was a guy that of course told gay jokes, you know, most people did in our town, right? You remember that there wasn't a single person in our town when we were kids who identified as, as being gay. And, um, you know, that you, uh, you, you, know, I think the thing about Wellsville, and there is a tremendous amount of support back there. I think that the, the personal capital we all have with people we love when we tell that when, you know, they know us and they've loved us our whole lives. And then they say, additionally, here's this bit of information. Um, it's really, really hard to, to not, you know, to not be able to love the whole of that person, although it sometimes takes time, but uh, I I hope I get to meet Aubrey and and I did know that that your daughter was gay. Um, so our our good friend, our mutual best friend Susan, had told me years ago when Aubrey came out to you. And and I I asked Susan how'd it go, and she said it went great. So you know, well done, well done. Um, so you know, I I want to be mindful of time here, Rob. I, again, I could talk to you all day long, but um, we've got a few groundbreakers, uh, segments that we've been having some fun with. The first one is called what's your weird. Basically I want (laughs) to know (laughs) what (laughs) this is
1: very dangerous
0: territory. (laughs) This is is where it gets fun. Buckle up folks. I want to know the thing that I am unable to Google about you online. What is a factoid about you that only you can tell me? Huh? That's tough
1: not because I have a lot of Google information. I, I'm, um, let's see.
0: This is hard hitting journalism, just like the Eagle cry. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. This is it.
1: Getting down to the brass tacks of the story. Um, what's a weird thing that people don't know about me is the question. Uh-huh. It, it, it's, it's funny. Kimberly and I laugh and, and joke and, um, you know, no one knows what's, what happens inside of somebody's house right and we, when and and we we get weird I'm and I'm scared no 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 I'm getting no. scared <laughs> it's just the fact that you know you can get weird and silly and and laugh about the dumbest things and then we we take a pause and think no one has ever Wait. seen this part of us they don't they, they don't, don't know. know how silly we can be right i mean yeah. you're a doctor and a navy seal and PhD. But, um, I, I, love that about us, that there's Kimberly talks about the, you know, the sacredness of the relationship, but there's parts of you that you don't share with anybody else.
0: Yeah. All right. I guess that's an, you're not going to answer the weird. <laughs> <thing>. I, <laughs> I respect that. And you know what, this, this tracks with what I always thought about Rob Newsom in school, I re- recall thinking he will be the president of the United States one day, and your non-answer on that <laughs> tells me that, that that still could happen. Yeah, well nice done. Pivot, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here. Um, so the next segment that is really not a segment at all, but I'm kind of winging it. I'm calling it easy peasy lemon squeezy. What is the what is the skill that you use in your everyday of work that comes most easily to you, and then what's that skill that you, that you really have to work at?
1: Um, I, I think the skill that, that, you know, right. Rolls just rolls so easily is, um, a capacity for, for combining right concepts or issues and, and seeing the integration points. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I love it. It's, 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 it gets into flow for me. And so that's, that's something that's, that's, um, so easy because it's who i am right yeah and then what's what is hardest for me um i can i can do it right i've done it in the past with respect to you know every every military person has been an operations officer and and you know it's kind of a a making of the donuts it's the routine activities that that are are incredibly important but incredibly mundane and um that's not <laughs> the older i've gotten that the, the less easy that is you know I i just want to i want to to do more on my creative side on my thinking side on my strategic side than than making the donuts in in the mundane
0: yeah, no, I get that. And you're a, you know, you're a terrifically talented writer. And and again, you've you've been a journalist since the very get. That was that was your first gig. Do you, do you think you'll ever write a book, Ron? Um, it,
1: it, a lot of people have asked me that, and I I, I waffle and I pivot. <laughs> so part of it is, you know, I I think I'm slightly aware of how difficult writing a book is. And I believe that you have to have something that is burning inside of you to yeah. get out and that it has to be something that you believe is important for other people to hear. And, um, you know, I, I haven't answered those two issues in the affirmative yet. I, I don't know if if Susan told you we kicked around a concept of, of a book, Susan, I call the hard chick. She's a cancer fighter for, um, decades and, um, just an amazing woman. And I was diagnosed with cancer in, in 2017 and surgery, radiation, chemotherapy came through that. And, you know, everything is fine now, but Susan said, why don't we write a book about, you know, cancer and, and, and how, how we've dealt with it. So, um, she's also a,
0: she's also a fantastic writer and she's also my best friend. So, um, let's just connect all the dots for everybody is that, um, I think that would be incredible. And it, and it's, 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 you've always been Susan's ride or die. And I know you've, you know, you, you, you both share that in one another. I think it would be a like cancer is kind of the foray into the story, but I think the story is uh, the friendships and the the alliances you build with other human beings that that do hold you up, you know, through the course of your life. You got to write it, Rob. You got to yeah.
1: do it. So, well, Susan said it's the it's an Oprah book of the month for sure.
0: It totally is. And when <laughs> have you not done what Susan Sainer-Davenport has told you what to do? And, uh, okay. What's your proudest career highlight and what's your proudest personal highlight?
1: Um, so let's start with, with personal, I guess. And and I think you were, obviously, you know, you know a lot about me, but, um, I was, I got married my, in between my, uh, senior and last semester, right. I did, I, so I was a red shirt college football player. So I did an extra semester. So between when I, I should have graduated and, and my last, uh, season of playing football. I got, I got married. We had um, our Aubrey in October and I graduated in January and, and then came in the military. So, and then, then we had two more kids. And after nearly seven years of marriage, we got divorced and I became a single parent and I had, you know, I had planned to, I had written my letter of resignation. I thought there's no way I can raise kids and be, a Navy SEAL officer. There's no way in the world. And um, I called my mom and dad and I said, "Hey, I wrote my letter. Um, I, I think I'll try to come back and you know go to JU Law School and be a lawyer." Right. And yeah. my dad said, "Wait a minute. Don't just just wait a minute. You know we're here to support. The family's here to support." Yeah. And so they came out on individually. Right. One of them stayed in Kansas. One of them came out and. And was with the kids on multiple deployments. My sister in law came out once. Um, oh they went back to Kansas, and and my um, brothers and mom and dad integrated them, you know, into wow. into birthdays and family events. But so my what I count as my highest accomplishment is is being a focused and engaged single parent. Um, you know, the kids were wow. were six, four, and three and wow. i i was very intentional about giving them the most possible experiences and and uh not being the product of a single parent be a burden for them and yeah. so i'm very happy with with being a single parent until kimberly came along and and uh, really raised the parenting game but yeah. it was that's that's my it's incredible. My highest accomplishment, I think. I, I wanted to say related to this, and and you know, this gets into privilege a bit since we're we're talking about diversity, but but you know, here's a single dad in Coronado, California, hanging out with with the single moms at school, yeah. right? And I've got my kids around and somebody who who uh, wasn't a single parent walked up and started singing my praises about oh what a great guy if you can see a big single parent you're doing all right, this right. and I was so chagrined and and embarrassed that they called me out because I'm a guy and yeah yeah right next to me is one of my good friends who's a single mom and she's looking like what what am I what doing? About me? <laughs> right right Right. so you know that was that was one of my experiences that kind of opened my eyes to to um I didn't know, you know, I didn't have a language back then of of privilege, but but certainly that, that stuck with me. Uh, now back to your question on, so, you know, my, my, I guess my greatest accomplishment in, in, uh, work wise, um, in 2000 and, uh, let's see, I think it was, uh, 2005 to to seven or eight, I, I had the great honor to be the, in the Navy, when you start a new organization, anybody that's start part of that ship or command is considered plank owner back when they built ships, right? A new ship, they basically would say, we assign, you know, Seaman Johnson or Captain Newsom uh, a piece of the ship. And so oh, it's wow. called a plank owner. And I was the commanding officer plank owner of a brand new organization that brought in all of the Navy's intelligence capabilities. And um, wow. we, we completely redesigned an, an, uh, an organization and a structure and a process to get after terrorist targets, right? We're, we're yeah. hunting terrorists in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when we started this, our success rate, what we call a jackpot, whether we capture or kill an enemy force, is was thirty-five percent. They were just moving much faster than we could. And right. and they right, it's their home. They know the the lay of the land yep. and we don't. Home field and, advantage. And so yeah. We were we were getting it handed to us or we just weren't being successful. And so we started this what what eventually became a targeting engine for the SEAL teams. And it uh in four years it increased the jackpot rate up to ninety-five percent. And, and, you know, all of that is amazing and the capability to the nation and, and the groundbreaking effort are, are phenomenal. I'm very proud of it. But, but what, what really it was about was taking this, this very diverse, cross-functional capability and organization and, and building it and building. Not often do you get a chance to build something from scratch. Mm-hmm. And you get to mm-hmm. intentionally design the culture to be a part of the SEAL teams, but yeah, but um, we had more than SEALs in it to be to create a team and a community and and a group that really cared about each other and that were empowered to act was absolutely phenomenal. And and uh, I think if you talk to any any member of that command. They every one of them says it was the most meaningful point in their career, which that's, you know, that to me is amazing.
0: That's huge and incredible. And no doubt if you if we were to visit uh, uh, that group today and no doubt we would see Rob Newsom all over it. That's incredible. What a what a great legacy. We're about to go to the fire round, Rob. This is where I'm going to toss five questions out to you really quickly. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Are you ready to go? Let's go. Number one, the zombie apocalypse comes. Do you have a plan?
1: Oh, uh, we have a massive plan. I love (laughs) zombie. Yeah, I think you know this, but yeah, I I have a plan of where to go, who to bring with me, where we're moving. Yeah.
0: You've got a bunker. Great. Love it. Okay, number two, besides your dad, Wayne Newsom, who was your favorite teacher at Wellsville High School?
1: Oh man. So many. Um, but the the top are obviously, you know, for educational return on investment, it's gotta be Dick Rogowitz. What a great government great. teacher. Um, yeah. for for just connecting with the students, it's it's um, Jim Wright. I love I love Skeeter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's good.
0: Rest in rest in peace, Jim. Uh, do you have a spy code name? And if not, what would it be? <laughs> um, you well, you my, have one, the, don't you?
1: No, no, not a spy code name. But you know, you pick up kind of monikers in in the teams. And and uh, in my younger days, I was called Bomber um, because it was. It was a uh, derivation of bomb, which they started calling me and just went to Balmer, which became Balmer, like blowing things up. Um, but, uh, if, if I had a spine code name, I think it might be something, something nondescript, like Clarence.
0: Like, do you remember Clarence Molenauer?
1: No, I was thinking of, um... Clarence from it's a wonderful life the guardian angel
0: ah I love you Rob Newson two more <laughs> questions Rob describe yourself in three words
1: Rob Newson in three words intentful genuine strategic
0: what's next for Rob Newson
1: yeah uh, that's my major focus right now I you know I did I finished uh three seasons with the with the Philadelphia 76ers and and when I was working on the contract with, with the Sixers, I, I told Alex, my, my boss, Hey, you know, I'm a military guy and you're a military guy. You understand this kind of need, need to roll every two to three years. And I said, so let's, let's, let's do a two-year contract. And he said, how about a three, three season contract? And I said, okay. And so, you know, I'm, I'm ready for, Ready and eager for something new, I I don't know I'm, you know what what the six seventy sixers I guess taught me or my experiences have taught me is like I said I care about teams leadership and culture I want to be in in the heart of an organization that I can affect positive change and and help with that so I've been looking at at chief of staff positions in different organizations because I think. And a lot of people don't understand what a chief of staff is or does, but it's, it's, um, you know, the right hand of the executive team and the the coordinator and kind of quarterback of, of the organization, if you will. So I'm interested in those kind of functions. Um, We talked a little bit about my, my cancer, um, about uh, shockingly there is a, dramatic incidence of cancer in the military and veteran community that is just, it's, it's little recognized, but, um, heartbreaking. And part of the problem yeah. is that these are young, healthy fit men and women who don't fit the profile. And so are not being screened for cancer until it's at a very advanced stage. And so when cancer is discovered, it's, um, they're making end of life decisions. They're not in a fight yeah. to to yeah. to save their life. And so, part of what, what I'm going to do for the next several years is is catalyze some energy and action around cancer in the military and cancer in special operations.
0: Amazing, Rob inspiring Um, we've been talking to Rob Newson all around unicorn military guy business guy strategy vision culture guy Um, it's time to wrap up I hate to leave you Rob Um, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about your career journey your personal journey and your philosophy on life and winning together and building community I just uh, so proud to have grown up with you and so proud to have you as a guest on Groundbreakers
1: Shally, it's been a joy and a pleasure. I I appreciate you and what you're doing.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Groundbreakers, y'all. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to the -the behind-the-scenes folks that share my passion and vision for our Groundbreakers series. Writer and producer, Caroline Jones. Engineer, Michael Pelliquin, And the Airs Next and Unispace teams. Despite the many ways our careers and lives may differ, we are all affected by how our environments impact diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We all have so much to learn from one another, and I appreciate you taking this ride with me. Don't forget to subscribe to Groundbreakers. Tune in and share with your colleagues, your friends, and your families. Talk soon.